My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Well, welcome to another day as we continue to go through the Word of God, continuing our journey through the book of Matthew. And we are looking at uh, the second half of chapter 7 today. This is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the most amazing sermon ever preached, Jesus' first sermon at the beginning of his ministry. And he is just going from topic to topic to topic. He's talking about prayer, fasting, giving, judging, uh, do unto others, uh, ask and you'll find uh, so many things. And he gets to verse 13 and he says something that's very interesting. He starts off in Matthew 7 verse 13 and he says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Jesus did not speak of this gate as our destiny, but as the entrance to a path. There's a right way and a wrong way. And Jesus appealed to everybody who was listening to this sermon to decide, go the more difficult way because that is what leads to life. And he understood and he taught that not all ways and not all destinations are equally good. One leads to destruction, the other leads to life. D.A. Carson, Jesus is not encouraging committed disciples or Christians to press on along a narrow way and be rewarded in the end. He is rather commanding his disciples to enter the way marked by persecution and rewarded in the end. Narrow, narrow. Verse 14, because narrow is the gate. So here again, verse 13, narrow. Verse 14, narrow is the gate. Difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. The true gate is narrow and difficult. And if your road has a gate that's easy and well-traveled, then David Guzik says, you do well to watch out. And there is a reality to this, that, not everybody's going to walk through the gate. Not, not everybody's going to choose the right way. And this is what Jesus is talking about here. And he goes on and he starts a, a long section. I'm going to read to you from verse 15 all the way down to verse 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Jesus has just warned us of a path that leads to destruction and now he reminds us there are many people who would try and guide us along the broader path that leads to destruction and the first step in combating these false prophets is to simply beware of them 
D.A. Carson, warnings against false prophets are necessarily based on the conviction that not all prophets are true and that truth can actually be violated. I see that all the time. As soon as, as, soon as a, a, a prophet, somebody who masquerades as a man of God and comes away and says, no, the path, the path is much broader to God. It's no, it's, it's open, it's easy, it's, it's, it's for everybody and doesn't matter how you act, then I know that they're a false prophet. Because Jesus himself said it's narrow and it's difficult. So you have to be aware of them. People who come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Yeah, they look all fluffy on the outside. People are like, oh, it's so nice. It's just so, so warm and fuzzy. It's the nature of these false prophets to deceive and to deny their own true character. Uh, they, why? Because they're deceiving themselves. They believe what they're saying. Believing themselves to be sheep when actually they're wolves, but they don't realize they're a wolf. So how do we judge them? We know them by their fruit. We guard ourselves against false prophets by taking a look at their fruits, which means paying attention to several aspects of their life and their ministry. Pay attention to the manner of the living uh, and how they live their lives. Do they show righteousness, humility, and faithfulness in the way that they live? Pay attention to the content of their teaching. Is it true fruit from God's word or is it man-centered, appealing to ears that want to be tickled? And pay attention to the effect of their teaching. Are people growing in Jesus or merely being entertained and eventually falling away? Is their teaching something that teaches total dependence and reliance on Jesus and the omission of sins and what Jesus said, repent and be baptized? Or is it, is it negating that, saying, no, you don't need to do that in order to get to God? That's what we need to look at. Every good tree bears good fruit. And a bad tree bears bad fruit. The fruit is inevitable. It's an inevitable result of who we are. Eventually, and it might take time for the harvest to come, the good or the bad fruit is evident and it reveals what kind of tree we are. Some people don't realize they're producing poisonous fruit that's going to hurt people. I understand that. I understand that people have noble motives and they're trying to be good. But you can be a wolf trying to be a good sheep. You're still a wolf. Okay, verse 21. I get passionate about this because I see too many people taking people away from Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. How do you come to him? Romans 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That You can't take that verse out of the Bible. You can't take the verses out of the Bible. It says, Jesus says, repent and be baptized. They're in there. We can't negate them. They're truth of God's word. So I have to passionately defend it. Verse 21. Not that God needs me to defend his word. Um, I'm just putting up a defense of it. That's all. Okay, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus spoke here of a proper verbal confession where these people said, Jesus, you are Lord. Now that's vital, but it's never enough by itself. The warning that Jesus 
gives here applies to people who speak or say things to Jesus or about Jesus, but they don't really mean them. Their mind is somewhere else, but they believe there's value in the words of saying Jesus is Lord, and they think there's value in fulfilling some kind of religious duty, but there's no heart, no soul, no spirit. It's just words and passing thoughts. And this warning of Jesus applies to the people who say, Lord, Lord, we're, we're, we're close, right? But their spiritual life has nothing to do with their daily life. They go to church even. Perhaps they fulfill some kind of daily religious ritual. But sin against God and they sin against man the exact same way that somebody who doesn't know Jesus would. The, the, it's staggering that Jesus claimed that he is the one that people must stand before on the final day of judgment. He's the one rightly called Lord. This obscure teacher who claimed to be the judge of all people in that day. And think about that as he's preaching this sermon. It was just, it would have been a staggering claim. But of course, this is before he'd, he'd done any ministry. This is before he died on a cross and rose again. Spurgeon says this, By saying in that day, Jesus drew our attention to a coming day of judgment for all men. What is the chief object of your life? Will you think as much of it in that day as you do now? Will you then count yourself wise to have so earnestly pursued it? You fancy that you can defend it now, but will you be able to defend it then when all things of the earth and time have melted into nothingness? The people that Jesus speaks of here had very impressive spiritual accomplishment. Think about this. They had prophesied, they cast out demons, they'd done wonders, and those things were wonderful. But they meant nothing without the true connection to Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus didn't seem to doubt their claims about doing these miraculous things. He didn't say, no, you didn't really prophesy. No, you didn't cast out demons. No, you didn't do miracles. Which leads us to understand that sometimes miracles are granted through pretended believers, reminding us that in the final analysis of all things, miracles prove nothing. These people even did these things in the name of Jesus. But they never had a relationship of love with Jesus Christ. And so Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. In the end, there's one basis of salvation and one only. And it's not just a mere verbal confession. It's not just spiritual works. It's knowing Jesus and being known by him. It's our connection to him. It's by the gift of faith that he gives to us that secures our salvation. And being connected to Jesus is how we are secure. Without connection to Jesus, then all the miracles and all the great works prove absolutely nothing. Now, it's a very important distinction to make that these are not people who lost their salvation. These were people who never had it in the first place. Jesus said, I never knew you. They thought they knew Jesus. So this is not people who were saved and then walked back on that. They were never in a position of being saved in the first place. Verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, he'll be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. In Jesus' illustration of the two builders, each house looked exactly the same from the outside. The real foundation of our life is usually hidden. People can't see it. It's like a foundation of a home. And it's only proven when the storms of life come. And the storms come from heaven in the form of rain, and they come from the earth in the form of floods. And a storm which involves rain and floods and wind was the ultimate in power to generations who didn't have weapons of mass destruction. So Jesus is using these natural elements and their sheer force, their destructive force. He's using that as, as a way to paint a picture here. Jesus warns us that the foundations of our lives will be shaken at some time or another. Now, in trials and in the ultimate judgment before God, and the time and storms of life will prove the strength of our foundation, even when it's hidden. And we might actually be surprised when we see who has really, truly built upon a good foundation. That's why we shouldn't judge others. And it's better that we test the foundation of our life now rather than later at our judgment before God when it's actually too late to go back and change our destiny and rebuild our foundation. Jesus may have had in mind here uh, the Old Testament passage from Proverbs 10. When the whirlwind passes by, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. Wise words. Everlasting, eternal, wise words. Everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does them, and everyone who says, hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, Jesus made a distinction. Merely hearing God's word is not enough to provide a secure foundation. It's necessary that we are also doers of the word of God, not just hearers. If not, then we commit the sin that will find us out, and it's the sin of doing nothing. Numbers 32, it's a sin to do nothing when we know that God wants us to do something. And Jesus says, and great will be their fall. Okay, let's wrap it up. Verse 28. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Here endeth the greatest sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And his audience couldn't help but notice that Jesus taught with an authority that was lacking in the teachers that they had heard in their synagogues and temples who just quoted other rabbis. Jesus here spoke with a different kind of intensity and authority. It was the authority of God's revealed word in him. Spurgeon says, Two things surprised them, the substance of his teaching and the manner of it. They had never heard such doctrine before, but their main astonishment was at his manner. There was a certainty, a power, a weight about it, such as they had never seen. Whenever God's word is presented as it truly is, with its inherent power, it will astonish people and it will set itself apart from the mere opinions of mankind. When we really understand Jesus in this Sermon on the Mount, we should also be astonished 
Because if we're not astonished, when we probably haven't really heard or understood what Jesus said, it should literally blow our minds. It should blow up every other foundation apart from him. It should cause us to rethink how we are building our lives. To have hearers astonished is a good thing. But it was not good if that was the extent of the effect. We shouldn't stop at astonishment. A good preacher always wants to do far more than just astonish his listeners. Whenever I preach a sermon, I'm not looking to just astonish people. I want to astonish them so that they can be changed and pointed towards Jesus, so they can be pointed towards the Word of God, the promises of the Word of God. And that leads me to my observation of this uh, chapter here. The fruit test will tell you the current state of your foundation. Have a look at your own fruit. What fruit is coming out of your life? What is the fruit of the people that you are looking to? Some people, you've got to cut people out of your life. Other people, you need to add people in. Some people, you need to cut things out of your life. Some of you need to rebuild your foundation. And, you know, we built a home once and there was an old existing home on it and it had a shaky foundation. We couldn't just level the home and build a new home on that shaky foundation. We had to dig up the old foundation and then reset it, make it stronger, more sturdy, more firm, a firm foundation. And then we built a new house on top of it. So you can't just change the exterior of how what other people see. What you have to do is rebuild the foundation. And the foundation that we must be built on is what Jesus preached on in this Sermon on the Mount. Every single jot and tittle, remember? Every single word, every letter is important. So read it over again. Listen to these over again. And then let's build our foundation on the words of Jesus and his commandments to us. Heavenly Father, I pray, Lord, that we would examine our own lives today. Fruit. What fruit is coming out of our life? Father, I pray, Lord, for anybody who's struggled with listening to teachers and they're like, I don't know who to believe. Father, I pray, Lord, for discernment. Discernment, Lord. I pray that we'd always remember it's narrow is the way. It's difficult. It's not meant to be easy. And God, I pray that we would understand that we should listen to people who point us to your word. And God, that your word has everything we need in it. Jesus, thank you for the authority with which you revealed the word, that you became the word, and that we could understand that not only are we to be astonished by your words, we are to be changed by them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day.